In his, in his uh, 1540, 1540 commentary on the book of Romans, John Calvin writes this. He says, I am in doubt whether it would be worthwhile to spend much time in speaking of the value of this epistle. My uncertainty, he says, is due only to my fear that, since my commendation of it falls far short of its grandeur, my remarks may merely obscure the epistle. In the next sentence, Calvin says his hesitance is, quote, due to the fact that at the very beginning, the epistle introduces itself better and explains itself in a much better way than any words can describe. And it is that beginning, that introduction to the epistle, the letter of Paul to the Romans, which is our text this morning, the New Testament lesson from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, which is all one sentence in the Greek. It's the longest and it's the densest and the grandest introduction in all of Paul's letters. The great uh, turn of the 20th century Dutch Reformed theologian, Gerhardus Voss, he said when speaking of Paul's theology, that, that what we encounter in Paul is a luminosity radiating from the core of condensed ideas. I have always loved that quote from Voss. What we find in Paul is a luminosity radiating from the core of condensed ideas. That is true no place more than here. And so we want to peer into this luminosity under the five headings, they're there in your outline. The Apostle and the Gospel. The Gospel and its Old Testament background. The centrality of Jesus Christ in the Gospel. The apostolic mission to the Gentiles. And the name of Christ in the Gospel. So... The first thing we want to look at is the Apostle Paul in the Gospel. Verse 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says he's a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle. Set apart for the Gospel of God. It's interesting, Paul thinks of himself first and foremost as a bond servant, a servant of Christ. The word means a slave. This is a very rich theme in Paul, and this is for him and to be for us the most liberating kind of servitude. As the slave of Jesus Christ, he is free from all men, free from their opinions, free from their intimidation free from their expectations, free from all their machinations. Not in some sort of cold, detached, I don't care what other people think kind of way, which is a masquerading kind of freedom that you'll often find. But no, he belongs as a bondservant holy to Christ. 
his Savior and Lord. And as such, he's free from men, but he's free for men. Free to love them and to serve them in Christ. Free to give up his rights and his prerogatives and his turf. The choice in life is not between freedom and slavery. The choice is merely whose slave will you be? Christ's or your own? There is no non-bondservant existence. The cruelest, harshest form of bond service is to your own ego. And so, this is the question as Paul puts it. Whose slave will we be? Whose bondservant will we be? The bondservant here is also, he says of himself, called or summoned to be an apostle. Paul's apostleship stems, he says, from a sovereign summons by God. One received on the Damascus Road. He was headed north to Syria to continue his persecution of the early church. And there, he says, he encounters the risen Christ. This is not a psychological aberration in Paul. 20, 25, 30 years later, across the whole span of his grand life, he comes back and he tells various people, some of them officials in the Roman Empire, about this encounter. And it is that event, that event, which constitutes his summons, his call. Now remember who's speaking to us here. Saul. Saul, the historical figure. A Pharisee. Pharisees were first century Jewish rabbis, if you will. Generally of the conservative and nationalistic sort. Generally suspicious and hostile to the Roman overlords. Paul was one of these Pharisees. He was trained in one of their great rabbinical schools, a kind of Oxford of his own day, the school of Gamaliel. And he was almost certainly destined because of his zeal and his learning and his gifts for great things in first century Judaism. That's Saul, the persecutor of the church. It is he who by his own testimony was confronted by the risen Jesus Christ. And so he's not an apostle from men. He does not receive his call from men. An apostle, by the way, is one who's sent. Sent with full authority. And so he can speak and he can act as the one who sends him. A deputy, if you will, an ambassador. And as an apostle, Paul says at the end of verse 1, That he set apart for the gospel of God. It's a simple but an extraordinary statement. It is the gospel, the good news, and the gospel alone which shapes and determines his calling. Paul is a man with one Singular, consuming passion. Just one. The gospel. 
This is what Advent is to do to us. It's not like we just need the gospel at the beginning of the Christian life. After that, we sort of grind it out. The Apostle Paul's passion across the whole of his life, youth, middle age, and later, is this thing called the gospel. It was a thrilling thing to him. This word, gospel, it's the word you get the word um, evangelism from in, in the English. This is Paul's favorite title for what he preaches, for his message. He uses this word some 60 times in his letters. And it has its origins in the latter half of the book of Isaiah, 800 years earlier. Where it's used to announce the good news of Zion's release from exile in Babylon. A release that foreshadows, if you will, that is a foretaste of our release from bondage in Christ. And so the gospel then is simply the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. So it's not merely a doctrine of of salvation, though it is that. It's the authoritative announcement. That's what the gospel is. It's the authoritative announcement of salvation that has been accomplished. In a sense, the gospel does not care how you feel. It is an objective announcement. God has acted in the middle of history, in in public, in the world, in Jesus Christ. Right? When, when 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 the anchor person gives the news, in the best cases anyway, they're objectively giving you the facts. Right? That's what the gospel is. It's an announcement. It is the true, as C.S. Lewis once called it, the true fairy tale. And as such, it becomes a summons. Then it does interest you. Then it seeks to engage you. Because this, this action, this announcement, this good news, hauls up our whole existence before the face of the holy and gracious God. And it calls for transformation. The gospel calls you and I to be transformed by the grace of God. For Paul, this gospel is a sacred trust. It's the very heart of his existence as an apostle. Notice the text says, he's separated unto this gospel. The idea here is that he's consecrated. This is a priestly word. He's saying the gospel is my lifelong priestly calling. And so everything is to serve, everything is to advance this gospel. I'm a priest unto this gospel. And if we look at Paul's life, we can see that if his sufferings and even his death do so, he's glad to suffer and die. For the Apostle Paul, he is never the issue. The gospel is always the issue, only the issue, everywhere the issue. 
So, separated to the gospel. But, but, separation unto the gospel means, doesn't it? Separation from all else. All else. I mean, there are a lot of things Paul could have done. It's not like he lacks skills. He's arguably the most brilliant person in the first century. He could have integrated the gospel into a balanced and rich and manifold life. He could have made the gospel his primary passion in a sea of lesser passions. You know, the gospel and then this and then this and then this. What are you into? Well, the gospel first, but I'm into these 17 other things too. The gospel could have been his primary passion in a sea of lesser passions. It was not. It was his only passion. This is a man without diversions. He has no hobbies. He has no time-consuming diversions. None. He's severed. That's what this word means, separated. Severed. Dead to everything else. Even his tent-making skills were either used or refrained from in terms of his apostolic mission. And so he puts to us a question. Are we separated to the gospel? And it's true, of course, we're not called as Paul was to be apostles. And yes, we do have other callings. And yes, we have necessary duties. And yes, hobbies can be good and healthy and wholesome, of course. But we are still called to do everything in light of and for the sake of the gospel. That's not Paul's unique calling. That's everyone's calling. And it seems to me that there's no avoiding the fact that this requires limiting the field of one's amusements rather sharply. So it's churches, churches, not just individuals, but churches easily get, we get derailed here. Churches can make some other issue. Usually it's a good issue. It's a noble issue. It's a thing that people have convictions on and they feel passionate about it. It might even be a scriptural issue and they make that thing their central passion. Well, we're an X church or we're a Y church or this church is about this and this church is about that. And as such, they lose all perspective, all sense of proportionality. This is a text with its maniacal focus on the gospel that says to us, look, we need to keep first things first. Second things second. And the gospel is the first thing. And then there's a big gap. And then all the second things are on the list. And all the second things, by the way, they flow from the gospel. Think of it this way. You can strip the church of everything, everything. Strip it up. You can strip it of its property, of its building, of its assets, of its committees. 
You can strip it of many of its programs. You can strip the church of everything. But if you haven't stripped it of the gospel, you haven't even touched the essence of her life. As wonderful as those other things are, and they're wonderful things, they're blessings in the gospel. The pulsating essence of the church's life is the gospel. And notice that this gospel in the text is called the gospel of God. That is Paul saying God is the author of. He's the authority behind this gospel. The gospel, Paul says, contains nothing from the human side. The apostles did not invent it. Who could fabricate the Christian gospel? Who would want to fabricate it? You know, it's interesting. In the whole history of religious and philosophical reflection in the world, there are really two things. Two things. That's all there are out there. There are ways to some sort of bliss which entail being a good person. Systems then basically of work salvation. And then there's Christianity. That's it. Every religion's in the, the former category. That's all there is. There's everything else, and then there's this gospel. This gospel of God can only be given and revealed by God. The gospel is, as we like to say, pure indicative. That is, it's a pure declaration. It's a divine action, a divine announcement. It's pure grace. It's pure gift. It's the best news you could ever get every day. That's what the gospel is. The Christian gospel does not claim to be a news report swimming in a sea of other news reports. It claims to be the authoritative announcement that the world needs to hear from the creator, the redeemer, and the judge of all men. And as such, it is the best news possible. What better news can there be than that God who created you and who loves you and who seeks your restoration and your redemption and healing has appeared in Jesus Christ to redeem you from your sins, all your sins, your manifold sins, your many sins, your private sins, your public sins. That God has sought you out in Christ. What better news is there than that? This means God the Father is an evangelist. He's the one who seeks and summons us through this proclamation. That's Paul in the gospel. Second, let's look at the the gospel and its Old Testament background. This gospel, Paul says, verse 2, is what God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul is saying, not only did I not make this gospel up, I didn't invent it. He says, it's not a new thing. Paul's not discarding the Old Testament. Paul is not a New Testament Christian, whatever that is. He says this gospel was promised beforehand. The gospel is deeply rooted and promised in the Old Testament. Paul's writings contain 
depending on how you count, something like 77 or 80 Old Testament quotations. 45 of them are in the book of Romans. So notice, more specifically, how and where this gospel is promised. It's promised, the text says in verse 2, through his holy prophets, that is the Hebrew prophets in the Holy Scripture. Now there were a fair number of prophets in the Old Testament whose oracles were not written down. And there was a large body of Jewish oral law. But Paul here points to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Scripture. The Gospel comes from God's holy prophets in the Holy Scripture. He's always going back to Scripture to draw on, to defend the Gospel, to expound the Gospel. The Gospel, in other words, is rooted deeply, deeply in Israel's history, in Israel's tradition, and in Israel's Scriptures. Jesus, as we like to say, cannot be Scandinavian. Jesus cannot be Scandinavian. Third, I want to look at the supremacy of Christ in this gospel. This gospel, verse 3 says, it concerns His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So a little more specifically, Paul is saying the content of the gospel is the Son of God. He's the sum and the substance of what God the Father, who is the author of the gospel, writes in the gospel. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, become flesh, is the center around which all things adhere, to which they must be referenced, and by which they must be judged. This is, again, part of what Advent helps us do. It helps us recenter our scattered lives. We are an easily disintegrated people. We meander. Christ is the center, the hinge, the still point of the turning world. Luther comments on this verse that here, he says, the door is thrown wide open for the understanding of Holy Scripture. That is, that everything must be understood in relation to Christ. The whole Bible is about Jesus of Nazareth. And this Christ, Christ is just a word which means anointed one or Messiah, strictly speaking, He is the Gospel. The whole Gospel, Calvin says, is contained in Christ, and therefore to move even a step from Christ is to withdraw oneself from the good news. This is the astounding thing that occurs in the Gospel. The gospel concerns the Son of God. And the Son of God, in the proclamation that the church celebrates this time of year, and and, and really we celebrate it on every Sunday, we just reflect and focus on it this time of year, is such that three things are happening together. Jesus is gathering up all the promises and prophecies made to Israel. And by the way, those promises and those prophecies include world history and empires. He's gathering that history up. Jesus is the eternal Son descending into the womb of Mary from heaven to earth. And Jesus is the one who brings the future kingdom to break into time. And all three of those things are entailed together. That's why the gospel concerns this person. 
It's very, it's very difficult for us in the, in the West to understand how shocking and reorienting this proclamation is. The, the Christian proclamation is not simply that God has come to be in a man or that God has come to inspire a man or that God has somehow joined himself to the will or the moral disposition of a man. The Christian proposition is that God has come as a man. And that changes everything. That means God suffers and God dies as a man in Jesus Christ. In in the past, the author of, of the letter to the Hebrews says, in the past, God spoke in many ways to the fathers and to the prophets. But in these last days... The days inaugurated by the incarnation of Christ. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Do you ever want God to speak to you personally, directly to you? Moderns have a hankering for this sort of thing. The Christian answer to that is, He has. God has spoken to us in His Son. We don't get to dictate where, what, we would, what the terms are on which God reveals himself. He has spoken to you in his son. And you can hear that speech in the Holy Scriptures. So this son, Paul goes on to talk about the son. He was a descendant of David. Speaks of his human ancestry, but it speaks uh, more I think accurately of the idea that Jesus was born and carried out his ministry in this fallen order. The NIV says, as to his human nature, but it would be better to say there, according to the flesh. In this fallen or in this world which we live in, in weakness and temptation and suffering and hunger and thirst and bleeding and dying, it's in that world. In that order that this son has stepped into. In the bleak midwinter of the world's life, of your heart, this one comes, descended from David. And then Paul skips ahead in verse 4, and he says that there's a new order inaugurated by his resurrection through the spirit of holiness which is just a, a, Pauline, a Paul way of saying the Holy Spirit, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. This declaration does not make Jesus the Son of God. Paul doesn't think Jesus became the Son of God at some point. But it's a public declaration of what he already was. The resurrection, then, Paul says, is an open public declaration that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And Paul delineates in 1 Corinthians 15 somewhere around six to 700 witnesses to the, to the resurrection. We can't go over that now. And so, Christ, crucified in weakness, raised in glory. That's Paul's point here. He who existed in this broken, crumbling, death-pervaded age now exists in a new order by the Holy Spirit in the power of the age to come. 
So, in verses 3 and 4 then, Paul's not talking about two dimensions of Jesus' existence, the divine dimension and the human dimension. He's talking about two stages of his ministry, his humiliation, his brokenness in this order, and his exaltation in the new order. That Jesus, who accomplished that work, who brought in that new order, he The Son of God, He is the sum and the substance of the gospel onto which Paul has separated his life. So, the gospel's promise in the Old Testament, and the good news is it's been given. It has been now given, it's no longer promised. Fourth, I want to look at the mission to the Gentiles. Paul continues, he says, through him. That's through the risen Christ, the one who confronted Paul. He says, we've received grace, favor, and apostleship to call people from among all the the Gentiles, meaning among all the nations, to the obedience that comes from faith. This Jesus, this Lord, gives you, gives us grace. And with grace comes apostleship, Paul says. Grace and apostleship. True grace hurls you out into the world to serve it. That's what grace does. Grace jars people. It jolts them into the service of the gospel of the Son. We've received grace and apostleship. Again, we're not apostles as Paul was. But we share in a subordinate but real way this commission. This commission is this. He's to bring about, the text says, the obedience of the faith among all the nations or all the Gentiles for His namesake. So the gospel has to be proclaimed. Has to be announced. And, and notice two things here. First, the gospel does demand, it does not request, it demands an obedient response. Paul thinks it's a form of derangement to not respond to the gospel. It's a form of lunacy. It's a form of insanity because the gospel is the story of the world. So the gospel demands, it's all grace, but it's grace which summons you to respond. And notice, he's to bring about this obedience among all nations. His commission knows no boundaries. The gospel is not for some people, for some cultures. It's not an antiquated, quaint sort of a thing. That's a nice religion they have over there in Nepal type of gospel. The gospel knows no narrowness of nation or tribe or class for those who herald it. I mean, after all, think of this text. The Roman Christians themselves the most cosmopolitan city at the center of the empire. They are, in verse 6, they're among the Gentiles, called to belong to Jesus. And Paul is writing to the Romans, in part because he longs to preach even beyond that in Spain. And so the risen Lord is the Lord of all. And we should seek to be Catholic, small Catholic in the sense of universal, international in our outlook. In fact, finally, we are cosmic in our outlook. 
So lift up your eyes. Don't say there's four months to the harvest. The fields are white for harvest. The need is urgent. Advent is the time to rekindle our missionary zeal. Finally, I want to to close the fifth point with the name of Christ. This obedience of faith among all nations is for the sake, you'll notice in the text, of His name. The name. So to to be driven by the gospel is to be consumed, and this is a healthy kind of consumption. This is the most integrated form of being consumed with a thing. It's to be consumed with the glory of God. To be zealous for God's fame. For His name to be confessed and proclaimed and worshipped by every tribe and every tongue. And this, is a, this idea of the, for the glory of His name is a crucial phrase here. Paul's whole emotional life is bound up with the plight of God's reputation. His name among the nations. He's troubled when this name is unknown. He's hurt when it's abused. He's indignant when it's blasphemed. He's glad when it's embraced. He's consumed with it being accorded the glory and honor that's due it. And this means that our highest And our deepest motivation in the gospel is not the Great Commission itself. It's not the charge to go. It's not even the plight of sinners, needy sinners like us who need the gospel. As important as those things are. The overriding concern is the name, the renown, if you will, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other motivation is subordinate to that one. Otherwise, we corrupt our calling. Again, Advent recenters you. It recenters you on the person of the Son of God, on the gospel of that Son, and on your motivations and intentions in the magnification of that name. And it says to you, come back to the center. Be healed. Be whole. Be integrated. Live in accordance with the grain of the world. This is Paul's lumen. This is why Voss said what we, what we have here is a luminosity radiating from the core of condensed idea. You have no idea how much stuff I left on the cutting room floor, but we only have so much time. This is a dense passage, but this is, this is Paul's luminous introduction to the gospel. And we've seen throughout Advent that it calls us back to Israel's scriptures. It calls us back to the fidelity of a God who has now appeared. Appeared in this fallen order and been raised in the power of the new order. It calls us all Gentiles, or most of us are Gentiles, not all. It calls us to the obedience of faith that the glorious name of Christ might be magnified. In all the earth. So let us separate ourselves unto this gospel. It's the gospel of God. It's the gospel of its Son. It's the best news ever. Amen.